Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As I record this, we are nearing the 1 million mark of reported cases of COVID-19. Nearly every country on Earth has now reported cases of COVID-19, but the impact of the coronavirus pandemic is not evenly distributed. Just a few countries account for the majority of cases. And even certain countries with high case loads seem to be handling it far better than others. Why is that? Well, one way to understand why some countries are dealing with their coronavirus outbreaks better than others is to use the lens of political science, specifically a branch of political science called comparative politics. This is a field of study that examines how the internal political characteristics of a country, say whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship, can explain how a state behaves. My guest today is Sophia Fenner, an assistant professor of political science at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania who specializes in comparative politics. She recently wrote a really fascinating article on the academic blog Duck of Minerva that mapped whether or not certain characteristics of a country that's been hit hard with COVID-19 helps determine how well it's responding to the crisis. Her article came in the midst of a hot debate, in the media mostly, about whether or not authoritarian dictatorships are dealing with this crisis better than liberal democracies, a question she answers directly in this episode. We kick off with a brief introduction to the field of comparative politics before having a longer conversation about what qualities of a state seem to determine how well it's responding to COVID-19. Now, you definitely do not need any background whatsoever in political science to understand and appreciate this conversation. The whole point of my interview was to help kind of translate her political science research into easily accessible conversational terms. I think you'll enjoy it. I know I did. I'm totally fascinated by this stuff, and I think you will be too. So I hope you guys are all staying safe out there, washing your hands, keeping socially distant. And I suspect a number of people who might appreciate this conversation are students of international relations or people who in general uh, are fascinated by international affairs and, and related fields. To that end, I've mentioned this before, but I have put together this podcast resource for People who are interested in international affairs, it's basically a list of episodes I've done over the years, though categorized by topics that you'll often encounter in international relations courses. Uh, again, these episodes are not academic focused, but I think people who are adjacent to or interested in academia might uh, appreciate this list, and I'm happy to send it to you. Just uh, send me an email using the contact form on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I'll email you back my list of podcast episodes that might be particularly interesting to 
international affairs students and teachers and other enthusiasts and aficionados. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. Now here is my conversation with Sophia Fenner of Bryn Mawr College. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I think most of us, when we think about being interested in the rest of the world, wherever our home country is, uh, we think about international relations. So we think about foreign policy, we think about the UN and the WTO and the European Union and things like that. Comparative politics is actually focused on the internal politics of various different countries. So we certainly acknowledge the existence of international forces, to be sure, uh, but we're actually interested in how individual countries sort of function as their own polities. And I think it's in moments like this where you see borders hardening and movements stopping. And to some extent, you know, international trade being threatened or complicated. Uh, it's those moments when you are really reminded that we all live in nation states or in in polities that claim to be nation states. Right. Uh, and that the domestic politics of individual countries are actually determining a lot of the ways that those countries are responding to um, this particular threat and also how they respond to various different threats. To that end, um, that paper you wrote, the piece you wrote on, on Duck of Minerva was just so fascinating to me, in which you sort of layered on top of the current coronavirus pandemic um, different sort of variables to test whether or not domestic politics or how domestic politics, even sort of the type of politics in each country's may determine or influence how those countries respond to this this crisis. So one of the kind of key debates, ongoing debates that we're seeing kind of play out in the media is whether or not authoritarian regimes are doing a better job of uh, responding to this crisis than democratic countries. What did your initial probe into that question reveal? So I actually started thinking about this because I actually, so regimes are what I spend most of my time thinking about. And so my initial response was like, of course, regimes are going to matter here. You know, I'm going to be able to, to figure out that, you know, certain kinds of regimes respond more quickly. Um, and what I was really surprised by when I actually sat down and sort of mapped out different countries' trajectories and different variables was that regime type doesn't actually seem to predict the quality or effectiveness of response in any significant way. Um, so when we're talking about regimes, I'm just going to back up for a little bit here. So the distinction between regime, government, and state is a really important one in comparative politics. And it's one that 
in sort of everyday language, we often elide those things. So we will use them interchangeably. And it's really important to not use them interchangeably. So the way we think about these is that the state is the infrastructural apparatus of um, tools that a ruler has at their disposal to implement policies. So kind of like the bureaucracy? Partly, it's, yeah, absolutely. So okay. bureaucracy, things like uh, highways, um, uh, you know, a national education system, if you have one, a national police force, if mm. you have one, okay. um, a national health service, if you have one, right? Those are all aspects of state capacity. So you can think about it as, you know, if if the state is a car, then the government is the person driving the car. Um, and the regime is the set of rules that determine who gets to be the driver. Uh, right. I feel like you've and used that metaphor before. It, it, I it's have. Perfect. <laughs> it, it actually comes from my own advisor's one-time advisor. So it's three generations old uh, in academia. Okay. Um, and so the thing that I actually found was the most important was state capacity, right? And so state capacity seems to me, and it does, you know, a number of things have happened since about a week ago when I wrote the piece. Uh, but it seems to me that state capacity is still strongly predicting mm. um, the quality of different countries' responses. So can, before we get into to that, can you explain why regime type, whether it's authoritarian or democracy, really doesn't? Uh, is not very determinative right now. Can you talk through some of the examples? So I just want to clarify, you know, when we say democracy, I'm really talking about a relatively bare bones definition of democracy. So thinking about democracies as as regimes that have more or less free or fair elections, uh, that have some civil rights and civil liberties that cross a bare minimum threshold. So like a free press, for example. Uh, and I'm not talking about democracy in terms of like some people's ideal of like the perfect social participatory mm -hmm. democracy that doesn't exist. Right. Well, like, so there's a difference between Italy and Iran. Absolutely. And right. Singapore. Absolutely. And so the difference is when we think about authoritarian regimes, we're thinking about uh, regimes that are systematically preventing different kinds of pluralism from emerging, whether that's a political opposition or a free newspaper or, you know, civil society movements or whatever. Right. So, the reason I initially thought that regimes would matter is because authoritarian regimes have real information problems, right? So you think about the stereotypical sort of Soviet bureaucrat who knows how much rice has been produced. I guess the Soviet Union didn't really grow rice, knows how much wheat has been produced in his region, but he also knows what the government quota is. And so when he talks to his superior, he's going to lie and say they met the quota, even if they didn't, because he's afraid of the consequences, Right. And so getting reliable information to the top of an authoritarian regime is actually really difficult. Hmm. So you would think that that would hamper uh, response. And it's possible that it did hamper the response in China in the very beginning um, because they were, you know, they were slow. I think the details are still coming out, but they were slow to take this seriously. And their first instinct was to suppress the fact that it was happening. Mm -hmm. But if you look at then a country like Singapore, there's no delay. There's no sort of pretending it's not happening. There's an immediate recognition that there's a threat um, and an immediate set of, uh, you know, measures put in place to combat that threat. Um, and then you look at Iran and it seems like a complete fiasco. I mean, it's not at all clear. Um, again, it's really hard to get information out of Iran, but it, it 
does not look like the government has been responding in an, in an ideal way. And so you see these wide ranges of responses among authoritarian regimes, and you see the same in democracies, right? So South Korea is a democracy. It has the model response that everyone around the world is looking to, but so is Italy. You know, and Italy has been a catastrophe. Um, and so there's just, there's so much variation within the universe of democratic regimes and within the universe of authoritarian regimes that it's really hard to look at regime type and think that it it has any sort of necessary relationship with uh, crisis response. So if regime type, isn't it a variable that determines how a country might respond or how we can really expect a country to respond to uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Like what are some of the er other variables that, that you sort of went through and kind of ticked off? And Yeah. So um, obviously state capacity is an important one and it does seem like state capacity varies um, in a pattern that maps on to the effectiveness of response. So more capable states are responding better with one caveat. And the caveat is um, that, you know, the car doesn't drive by itself. The state doesn't work on its own. You need to have the person driving the car decide to use the state, right? And so we're seeing cases where there may be a pretty formidable state apparatus, uh, but it's not being deployed. Like what would be an example of that? So an example of that would be, I mean, think about the early days of the British response. So Britain is a fairly, you know, the United Kingdom has a fairly competent state apparatus. They have a nationalized health service. Uh, they have uh, tools they could use. But at the beginning of the British response, uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister's basic orientation was, we're going to go for herd immunity and we're not going to do anything about this. <laughs> and... So, you know, the NHS can't mobilize to adapt to a new kind of disease on its own. It needs direction from above to be able to do that. And so you've seen that belatedly. You know, I suppose once Boris Johnson got COVID, his opinion may have changed. Um, and he, you can see them now trying to use those tools. But I, I mean, there's a parallel in the United States. So we have something called the Defense Authorization Act, which uh, was passed in the aftermath of World War II to kind of codify some of the state commandeering of private production that had happened during World War II. Um, and uh, once they finally, you know, the Trump administration was relatively slow to sign the Defense Production Act. But even once they signed it, they didn't use it. So they had had, well, so they had activated it, right? They had activated its powers, but then they sort of sat on their hands and didn't use those powers. And so, you know, you can certainly see that leadership decisions matter here, which makes scholars, I think, a little bit uncomfortable yeah, because that, we really. That's interesting because yeah. when you talk about like international relations theory, um, it's generally understood or, you know, people mm -hmm. tend to tend to to posit that actual individual leaders don't matter. It's like the structure of the international system and exactly. the structure of the state that matters that the individual who the leader is doesn't really make a difference. But here, let alone their personality. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Yeah. Here, here you're, you're seeing it very clearly. It, 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 it does matter. Yeah, I think this is, you know, if I think we've all understood that elections have consequences, but this is the elections have consequences sort of giant lesson. Um, 
you know, we in comparative politics are also very oriented to structures. So state capacity, for example, is a long term historical variable. It's built slowly, usually and over time. Um, we like to talk about economic development as a process that happens sort of slowly and over time. Uh, we we want to talk about the sort of ethnic structure of a society. We want to talk about structures. And uh, I think this is just a case where reality has intervened. And it turns out that that rulers have agency. Um, that's kind of what makes them rulers by definition. Uh, and we don't have a theoretical framework for that. I mean, there are some people saying, well, of course, like the closed borders and the crackdowns on immigration, those are consonant with a certain kind of, you know, right wing ideology. But that doesn't extend to explain all of the behaviors. And it's not just right wing governments, right? I, you know, we're seeing governments um, of all sorts, both fail to respond and succeed at responding well, right can i ask like where does italy fit in in your sort of matrix i mean you know yeah. with the, another country with a you know presumably good state capacity uh but one that you know is is so far the hardest hit absolutely so italy is sort of a head scratcher the thing about state capacity is that one of the reasons it's sort of underappreciated or understudied is that it's very hard to quantify um, there aren't good cross-national metrics, and so it can't be picked up in sort of these large-end statistical studies that are the bread and butter of contemporary political science, for better or worse. Uh, so it's hard. I've thought a lot about Italy in terms of trying to figure out where it fits in terms of its state capacity. I think it does have a decently capable state. Uh, it's not certainly as capable as some of its neighbors or some other European countries, right? So we wouldn't want to think about it as being in the same category as like Germany, for example. Um, but the Italian state is heavily decentralized, much like the United States is heavily decentralized. And the thing about decentralization is that uh, it weakens the central state by definition, because you're you're sort of ceding powers to subnational units, but it also kind of leaves you at the mercy of your subnational unit ruler. So in the US, that's our governors. And I think we've all realized that our governors are much more important than we thought they were in the last couple of weeks. Um, and so I don't know enough about Italy to say whether there is a sort of clear pattern of leadership failure or subnational capacity variation going on. Mm. Um, the fact that it's so regional in, you know, that it was so concentrated in the north of Italy, uh, you know, that that's partly because of economic patterns, but it could also be because of local responses. I just don't know. Mm. So, but I do think, I mean, I think Italy and, and now Spain, I mean, Spain is on track to uh, be even worse than Italy. Uh, it has had this explosion in case numbers in the last couple of days. And, you know, that's a fairly capable state. That's a state with a history of, you know, state building fascism that wasn't that long ago. Um, and so I do think the US, Italy and Spain, you know, they're not super high capacity states. They're sort of decent kind of middle of the road capacity states. The United States might be even less. Uh, we're so decentralized. I wonder if, if like part of this explanation for why different countries are were have responded to this differently, and in, in the case of say Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, China, um, 
you know, responded to it seemingly, at least, you know, now pretty well, if like culture offers mm. any sort of, of explanation. I mean, I was just ahead of this conversation. I was trying to think to myself what sort of cultural explanation might suggest why those countries in Asia seem to be faring better. The only thing I can come up with at the top of my head was that face masks are more prevalent and have are always more sort of culturally accepted. You know, wearing a face mask outside doesn't you know seem odd in many of those Absolutely. places where, you know, I, I wore mine to the grocery store today and I felt really weird about it. Um, yeah. So, like, does culture have a role in these sort of comparative analyses? So I think that society definitely has a role in these anal- in these analyses. So, for example, you know, you can have a government tell you to stay home and to wear a mask or you I mean you can have a government tell you anything. It doesn't mean that people are going to do it. Right. And so, um, you know, we've all seen in in the United States in the past couple of weeks, some sort of glaring examples of people just not heeding um, government advice. And so I think it does matter. um the extent to which society is prepared to buy in to what the government is asking it to do and to sort of adopt these new lifestyles like wearing a mask in public or grocery shopping, you know, once every two weeks um, or any kind of behavior that people didn't do before. The challenge is we just don't have the case variation yet to real to know how much to know whether the society aspect matters independently, because, for example, like Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore are all really powerful states and they all had governments that took this seriously. So it's hard to know if there's like an, you know, if there's an independent societal effect or if it's simply that those are cases that were like the fundamentals were already pretty good. Um, I do think a couple of things uh, about generally thinking about culture. I think we're, we're often, I mean, and particularly now, which is this time when we're dealing with a lot of anti-Asian racism around the world, you know, not just in the United States. Um, I think it's, there is a tendency to look at um, East Asian countries and say, oh, those people are so different from us, you know, like they just, um, they are obedient or they do what they're told or all of these things. And there's just, you know, these are, if you think about Taiwan and and South Korea. I mean, these are places where people fought authoritarian regimes for decades. You know, the history here is not one of a quiescent population. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily the case that anything that the South Korean government tells people to do, you know, the people are going to do. Um, I do think there's an aspect here about trust in institutions, uh, which is to say, I think trusted institutions in South Korea, and I would have to look at the numbers for all of these East Asian cases, but is higher uh, than trusted institutions um, here in the United States, for example. And so I've been talking to a um, uh, someone named uh, Caroline Tynan about this and really talking about the fact that you're much more likely to do what the government tells you if you trust the messaging. And so I think the challenges that we have, many of us have had trying to process these daily press briefings from the president is that we don't trust the messenger. And so, and trust institutions and trust in leadership is built over the long term. You can't build that overnight. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think, 
there is something societal about this. Like, obviously, we all each matter. I mean, it's a disease, like our own individual choices, as we've seen on all of these social distancing models, matter. Um, but we don't quite yet have the case variation to sort of study that comparatively. We're kind of at the mercy of reality here in terms of how the combinations of variables fall out. So, so can I say one more thing about yeah, Asia? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would say is these are countries that have dealt with epidemic threats before and recently. So if you think about SARS, uh, which you know w- didn't have that big of an effect on the world, but was incredibly... Uh, I mean, it was a very big deal in in Hong Kong, especially, um, and in Taiwan. And so these are governments and people who in their own lifetimes have had to deal with a pandemic threat before. Mm -hmm. And I think that very much gives you, you know, uh, a roadmap, I think, both for the government and for individual people to kind of structure your behavior and structure your response. It's not all new. Mm -hmm. um, And it's not the first time you've been asked to do this. And I think that, I mean, it, I, I think that can only be an asset. So you uh, could, you could take that variable and probably apply it to places like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, um, you know, countries, you know, a few years ago were hit hard by Ebola, but are themselves democracies with weak state apparatus. And you wonder if sort of a country that has experienced Ebola, uh, like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, um, you know, is better equipped to respond uh, than a similarly weak state democracy. I'm looking at a map of Africa here, picking like, I don't know, um, Botswana. Yeah, or actually Botswana is a stronger state. That's not a good example. But you know know what I'm saying? If there's like another country in, in the region um, say Senegal or no Senegal had had it too. Um, well, I mean, I, yeah. so this is what you're doing right now is compared yeah. to politics, right? Okay. Is sort of I'm staring at a map and, and reading and names of countries. You have no idea how much time we spent doing that. Um, yeah. I think that's my desperate hope. Like mm-hmm. the hope I am clinging to here because there's another shoe that's about to drop and it's essentially the entire global South. Yeah. Um, which is like, we think the response is, we're seeing our bad. Um, you know, my, I have family in Egypt and I'm so much more terrified for them and for what will happen in a sort of middling state capacity military regime, um, than I will ever be about what's going to happen in the United States. And that's not like an endorsement of the United States response, but it's just, we have more resources. Um, and so my, my great hope is that there are countries in the world. And I'm thinking I, I specifically those, um, that dealt with Ebola and to some extent that dealt with HIV. Um, even though the, the circumstances of, of transmission are obviously very different. Yeah. You, My you know hope what, is that yeah. they have have they have gotten both social patterns and governmental responses more in order than they would otherwise. So they may be able to overperform their kind of baseline fundamentals of state capacity and and sort of government yeah. um, competence. That's interesting. One of the reasons that experts believe that Nigeria was not so hard hit 
by the Ebola epidemic that, that devastated other countries in the region, despite being by far the largest and most sprawling country in the region, is because they had a very sophisticated uh, and still do polio surveillance network that they used huh. to, um, to, to sort of track and, and they, they harness that for Ebola tracking. Nigeria is, you know, recently, you know, eliminated polio. There's only two countries that have polio, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so it was harnessing and he was using that polio surveillance network that they were able to stop uh, Ebola from, from gaining a hold there. And you wonder if, if there are those kind of linkages. You hope, you hope there yeah. are. Um, I think, but the flip side of course is, is thinking about um, thinking about Afghanistan and Pakistan or thinking about some of the Ebola interventions that have sort of gone horribly wrong Um is real concern about whether people have enough trust in public health authorities or even in health charities uh, to to come and get care if they need it, uh, to report cases when they occur. Um, you know, I mean, the, the well-known story in Afghanistan is that the CIA used a vaccination campaign as cover for, um, sorry, this is in Pakistan, for looking for Osama bin Laden, right? Yeah. Which is undermined. I mean, there's a reason that those are the two countries that still have polio. Yeah. yeah and I worry about, I'm thinking about, you know, these, these situations where um, health workers have been attacked in DR Congo um, and just sort of also worrying that prior experience can be a negative, right? I mean, prior experience, there's a lot of history about um, people coming from outside and saying that, people have a disease and you need to have this cure, right? I mean, that's that's got a long history and it's mostly not a good one. And yeah. so I worry about that too in terms of structuring social commitment or, or societal kind of buy-in um, in, in a lot of parts of the world that haven't quite been hit head on yet. So uh, last question, um, going forward, you know, what sort of variables what what else are you sort of looking for what kind of data would be interesting to you to suggest how you know a country particularly as these other kinds of regimes democracies with weak states uh get hit more and more by uh the coronavirus like what what's what are you sort of looking towards so one thing that i've i've been following is a little bit is the extent to which regimes can re or governments can repurpose existing state capacity for new purposes. Um, so that could be, again, that could be this very close association of saying, okay, we've got a polio surveillance program. Let's, let's flip it and do COVID surveillance. Um, but it could be different. I mean, I think the only example we really have so far of this is a little bit alarming, but it's, it's the Israeli state response, which is to, uh, sorry, Israeli regime government, I see. I do this too. Yeah. It's a little tricky to keep it straight. <laughs> but so the Israeli government has been repurposing anti-terrorism tools to track the virus. Mm. And I mean, <laughs> that obviously raises some questions, right? Um, but I think what's interesting is that um, people are pushing back against it. And people who maybe didn't push back against it when it was used for anti-terrorism um, are pushing back against it now. And so part of what I'm actually interested in, you know, is is how this moment is either 
how it reshapes states and societies, right? So how often we think about crises as times when things can change, as opportunities that we could take advantage of to shift um, the way the state is structured to kind of grow state capacity um, or to change the way the government is um, selected, right? And but there are also just as many examples, I think, um, in history of things going back to just a hardened version of they were the way the way they were before. Hmm. And so, what I'm really interested in right now is actually not so much sort of predicting outcomes, although I do think this issue of transferring state capacity from one issue area to another is going to be really key. But I'm really interested in what this does uh, to societies, to states, um, to regimes, uh, and you know, I think it's too early to know. And so I have no idea. And it's the things that I have no idea about that are actually the most interesting, right? I mean, I can kind of sketch you out based largely on state capacity, you know, how different countries are probably going to do, but I have no idea how this is going to change us. And that's what's really intriguing to me right now. Uh, well, Sophia, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. I look forward to your book on this, uh, which <laughs> I expect is coming in the next two years. Yeah, we move slowly. So maybe sometime <laughs> in 2030. Okay, yeah. Like the, yeah. the pace from blog post on Duck of Minerva to book is uh, <laughs> a, a few years. Give me a long one. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your time. This is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay home, stay safe. All right. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I could totally geek out on this for, for hours. And yeah, at the end of the conversation there, I did just stare at the map that I have sitting next to me when I record these and realized I was just like blurting out names of countries. But apparently that's what uh, comparative politics is. So there you go. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.